past the six-minute mark in our countdown for Apollo 11, the flight to land of the first men on the moon. We're on time at the present time for our plane liftoff of 32 minutes past the hour. Coming up shortly, that swing arm up at the spacecraft level will come back to its fully retracted position. This should occur at the five-minute mark in the count. The swing arm now coming back as our countdown continues. Skip Chauvin informing the astronauts that the swing arm is now coming back. Four minutes and counting, we are goal for Apollo 11. We'll be coming up in the automatic sequence about 10 or 15 seconds from this time. The vehicle starting to pressurize as far as the propellant tanks are concerned, and all is still go as we monitor our status for it. Firing command coming in now. We're on an automatic sequence as the master computer supervises hundreds of events occurring over these last few minutes. Two minutes, ten seconds, and coming. Oxidizer tanks in the second and third stages now have pressurized. T-minus one minute, 35 seconds. The third stage completely pressurized. T-minus 60 seconds and counting. We passed T-minus 60. 55 seconds and counting. Neil Armstrong reported back when he received the good wishes. Thank you very much. We know it will be a good flight. Good luck and Godspeed. 40 seconds away from the Apollo 11 liftoff. All the second stage tanks now pressurized. 35 seconds and counting. We are still go with Apollo 11. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. Neil Armstrong reporting the roll and pitch program, which puts Apollo 11 on proper heading. It seems to me that the flight we have seen begin today was a combining of technology and romance in a way they never have been combined before, which is to say that the engineers now are doing what poets and romantics have imagined. And perhaps there will always be a gap between what man imagines and what he is able to do because it is easier to think about doing something than it is to do it. But so long as the gap between imagination and reality is not too big, we may even preserve some degree of sanity. The alternative is for man to feel bound and limited and held down when what he actually wants to do is move, explore, expand, grow, achieve, fly and so with some really splendid engineering we've seen here today an impressive tribute by the way to the talent turned out by american technical schools one generation of americans is doing what an earlier generation dreamed about and the other night i was talking with some nasa people who pointed out that 40 years after Lindbergh flew the Atlantic alone for the first time, 20,000 people every day fly the Atlantic, from babies to grandmothers. And what will grow out of this in 40 years, obviously we don't know. All right, you guys ready? Yes, sir. Let's rock. Escapingthecave.com, also on the ChristopherMedia.net network, and at ETC Pod on Twitter. Escaping the cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. Tonzilla X-Pod. Tonzilla X-Pod. Out of Tonzilla Files, welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave, the Tonzilla X-Pod, on the ChristopherMedia.net network, also at uh, uh, EscapingTheCave.com. That's my unused website. It's pathetic. And I'm drinking orange soda. I am ready to rock tonight. Joined by Chris of ChristopherMedia.net fame. Hello, Chris. Hello, Chris. <laughs> Hi, Rich. 
Hey, how you doing? Rich has joined us as well. It is a uh, triumphant, not just my dulcet tones, penetrating your eardrums this week. 50th anniversary of the uh, moon launch today. Apollo 11 took off from Cape Kennedy down in Florida 50 years ago this morning. We're recording on uh, July 16th, by the way, the night of July 16th. One of the most incredible. Is there a bigger achievement, do you think, than that? Leaving the planet and putting two dudes' feet on the fucking moon? Only if they were women, Todd. <laughs> You're not going there yet. Rain yourself in there, <laughs> Tonto Silver away. guy. Really, though, there's... <laughs> We have plenty of time for that, man. Come on. Let's let's have a little hope. A little uplifting experience here, man. Can we do that before we get into the shit? <laughs> no, I'd, I'd say as far as explore, exploration goes, no. I can't think of a bigger... Until we can get to the absolute bottom of the sea or to Mars. I mean, that's it, right? I'm just yeah. asking, as of right now, today, this very minute in time of all of human history, is there a more astonishing accomplishment than that no has mankind achieved anything more impressive <laughs> than that are we including the wheel everything consciousness yeah <laughs> well that's debatable <laughs> that's why i said it <laughs> oh it is it is a podcast you're, you're trying to yes conflict makes good podcasting i've heard that before from you rich i get it <laughs> maybe the wheel trumps this one just because without the wheel you don't get you did one. it again didn't you you did that on purpose the no. wheel trumps this one you got no <laughs> god damn it why can't we keep that was that's a term from euchre god damn it <laughs> 50 years ago today, though, man, half a century has passed, and we haven't even gotten to Mars. That's, that was one thing I was thinking while you were introducing this. Like, 50 years later, we haven't gotten to Mars? Yeah. I mean, I, was, I, was, I, I got caught up. I was going to record a podcast this morning. I, said, I actually did record one. We have another mysterious episode floating in the ethos that's not been released yet. Uh, but I was thinking about this, and I got, I got sucked into the uh, coverage. Because uh, there's this thing on YouTube that NBC had posted, or um, I don't know, maybe they ran a program a few years ago. As it happened, you know, you've seen the 9-11. They, they run the, the, the news coverage as it occurred in real time. They have one yeah. of these for uh, the Apollo 11 launch. And I was listening to this, and, and they were talking like the, the next NASA programs, they were talking about putting space stations up in orbit, like multiple space stations in orbit around the Earth in the 70s. Never got there. Nothing happened. We sent a few, I think we have sent maybe, what was it, two or three more missions to the moon. I think at least one, maybe two. I, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, we went back to the moon a couple more times, and then the funding just dried the fuck up. We sent Voyager out. That's pretty astounding. I guess maybe that would be <laughs> maybe in the same ballpark as, as Apollo 11. Is sending a probe yeah, out of thinking, the solar system? <laughs> it's pretty yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, I was thinking that, but I was like, eh, it's not. It's, 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 there's it's, risk, but it's not risk of human life. Right. Yeah, I mean, if... That's why Apollo 13 was the, you know, drama movie based on reality it was because shit goes wrong out by the moon. Uh, you're on your own. You can't call the Maytag, man. You better be able to figure it out or else there's just going to be three skeletons floating around the moon for the rest of eternity. As a technological, just sort of exploratory achievement, I, I would put Voyager up there. Right. Leaving the solar system, just go. <laughs> you're not coming back. We're gonna put a little transmitter on you and just you're gonna you're just gonna go where you go. That's pretty awesome. Just as a technological achievement. But as a mankind sort of thing, with the human element involved that you just mentioned, nothing can approach this. I don't even think a mission to Mars can approach this. Because it was it was the first time doing it on the technology that they had available. Like our iPhones are more powerful than the computers on Apollo eleven. I mean, they yeah. al they almost did this in analog, <laughs> if you think of it in those terms. You know what I mean? And the balls that it took 
And this is the thing that always gets me, and this is the thing that I really admire about explorers. Not just these guys, but people like Magellan and all those other, like the old school explorers, except for Columbus. He can go fuck himself. Did you know Columbus got stranded on an island? Didn't know how to fish. And his whole crew almost starved because they couldn't fish. Fuck that guy. I don't care what he did to the Indians. Just fuck that guy for being an idiot. He got lost. And then, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> I have a real... I, I, do, I, do, I do have to say, if the fact that co- between Columbus and his crew, who are starving, if, the, if necessity being the mother of invention didn't make them go, we don't know how to fish, but let's Fucking trial and error until we figure it out. <laughs> That's exactly you know. right. And they, they, it wasn't like they were in Greenland. This was like a Caribbean island. And they got stranded there. Their boat broke or some shit. They couldn't fix the boat. They were stuck there. I don't remember the, all the details. I'd have to go look it up. But the, the one thing that sticks out in my head is they're on this fucking island. There are natives there that hate them, won't trade with them, won't give them anything. And they can't go to the shoreline and throw a fucking uh, fishing line into the Caribbean Sea and bring a fish out of it. I can't get past that. Just something Even about. Tom Hanks caught fish. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Right. And he's a fucking FedEx guy, right? He's not so, a so, world explorer. So I'm starting to think that these people that are like, yeah, Columbus just kind of like bumbled his way into history. They might be on to something here. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he was looking for India. He thought he thought he was in India for one thing. Yeah, it's just that guy. Uh. Just um, he's the one guy that I can't stand. But the rest of them, going back to the original point, like the human element of this, the balls that it took not only to be a test pilot. I mean, at the very, very, the very foundation of being an, an astronaut in the '60s, you had to be pretty much had to be a test pilot or an engineer or something like that. And to go through all of that training, nobody had done this before. There's they're they're figuring this out for the first time, and you're going to put your ass in those simulators, those trainers. And then ultimately, you're going to put yourself on like a 60-story hydrogen bomb. That's basically what the uh, Gemini or the Saturn rockets were. Controlled hydrogen bomb explosions to put you into orbit. The balls that it took to do that, I can't even comprehend it. Yeah, that's you got balls big enough to come in a dump truck at that point. And that's just. And, and on top of that, there had been deaths already yeah. by the time we got to the moon. We, we didn't do like we did with the shuttle program in 86 back then and shelve it for four or five years or whatever it was. No, they were like, yep, that sucks. Give them a military funeral. Lay, lay them out in state. But we got shit to do. Let's go. And then they adjusted the astronaut rotation for future missions. That was the big thing. Somebody, two pilots had gotten killed. I did a little research on this last night. I got sucked into, like, uh, just filling in my history gaps, really, because I got really interested in it just because of the 50th anniversary. And I, I think it, it might have been 1964 or 1965. Two astronauts who were slated to be crew members uh, were flying to St. Louis to train in one of the Gemini uh, simulators, at, I think at Lambert Field, and the guy crashed, killing two of them. This guy's like going to fly Apollo and he can't land at Lambert Field. Anyway, two of them are dead, and that's how Buzz Aldrin got bumped up and eventually found his way onto Apollo 11 because two of these astronauts had died in the process. Now, they didn't get killed in trading or anything like that, but it just goes to kind of show you that this was really dangerous shit. I mean, you're talking about the, what was it, the mercury capsule that caught fire? Like an electrical yeah. short, something like yep. that, and the the oxygen. You're inside of a goddamn microwave that catches on fire. Three of you are gone, and they didn't stop anything. You're damn, you're, you're absolutely right about that. They just kept going. They, they figured, you know what? This is the price of exploration. This is the price of doing something no one else has done. There's going to be loss. And they kept moving forward with it to get to the goal. And nobody complained that I'm aware of about that anyway. I mean, they didn't like it. I don't ever remember thinking, oh, we need to shut this down because of the human cost. Well, one of the, one of the astronauts that died in that fire was Gus Grissom, who was one of the originals of uh, Mercury 7. Yeah. And those guys had to want it. If you've ever read or, or watched the, the movie The Right Stuff, it was basically torture, torture people until they can see who can take it, and then whoever's left standing, boom, you're an astronaut. Yeah. I mean, they put those guys through hell, so 
even, even I would imagine even the, if the families were upset, they were like, you know, this is what he wanted. Right. I mean, you, it's like you don't accidentally become a Navy SEAL. <laughs> you don't just stumble into a room and they go, oh, you're a Navy SEAL now. Oh, is that how that works? No, 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 no. They can't fuck around and become a SEAL? No, it's not how that I works. think that's pretty much what he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, and it, it really is, I don't know if it speaks to we're overly cautious now, or if this was because it was a space race and it was really a, a competition with Russia. Yeah. And Russia had lost, Russia had lost a few astronauts before us. They lost and a they lot more than we did. What, that we know of. I mean, you yeah. know, just the ones we know of. God knows what happened that we never heard about or rumors or whatever. But they never took their foot off the gas. No. So, I mean, it was like, it was almost a, 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 a game of chicken to the moon. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about Gus Grissom when you were talking about him. He was one of the guys that I read about last night. And we all know how he died, right? Uh, but he was doing a training mission, I think, in, I don't know what ocean it was in. But they, it was it was a getting out of the capsule training, Right. And something went wrong. Mm-hmm. A piece of equipment malfunctioned. The capsule splashed down and the hatch blew. And the capsule started filling up with water. All right. Gus Grissom's on the inside of this in his spacesuit, mind you, while this capsule is filling with water and about to plunge to the depths of the ocean. He barely got out of that. Right. And that now he's flopping around in the sea in a, in a spacesuit, which is filling with water. Now, a spacesuit you understand, is airtight, correct? Imagine what that's going to be like when it starts to fill with water. He said, yeah. yeah, the thing that I read was that he barely got the horse collar from the helicopter on him before he was done. He barely got out. I mean, he had almost died before the Mercury tragedy. Yeah. And he kept going. He kept going. It's like, fuck it. I'm, yeah, keep going. Keep head down. I'm forward march. I want to go. I want to go up there that bad. Well, any of these guys could have gotten out of the astronaut. It's not like Russia. You know, they weren't shackled to this program. There were people chomping at the bit to get in. If these guys didn't want to do it, they could have gotten out at any time. And they were that driven to go. One of the one of the stories behind NASA getting their test pilots in the first the first the first batch at least, or the the first batch of astronauts, I should say, is they went to all the, the top test pilots, Chuck Yeager being number one amongst them. Uh, I think he held the world records for piloting the fastest jet at that point. Mm. And he laughed at him and he goes, what you think I'm going to be spamming a can can for you? I don't think so. <laughs> and then a couple years down the road, yeah, I guess he expressed regret that he didn't do it. And he actually tried to become an astronaut. And NASA was like, sorry, man, <laughs> don't know what to tell you. It's like, we gave you your shot. You know, you, you laughed it off. You said, you know, don't want to be spamming a can. Yeah, I th- I think you hit a, a, a really important aspect of this was was the Russians, and how that was really a, a huge degree of as to why, at least the government and the, the military, uh, was so hell bent on beating them to the moon because Sputnik, I guess, came out of nowhere. From what I understand, and it was like everybody was like, "Holy fuck, they have something up there circling the Earth." You can listen to it. You can get on the right frequency. And when it comes over the United States, you can listen to the signal coming down from this Russian piece of machinery floating a couple of hundred miles over your head. What are they going to do with that? I think that had a lot to do with it. Because what are you going to give? In the 1960s, at the height of the Cold War, are you going to give Khrushchev outer space? No. Do you think a lot of this, too, was just uh, was fulfilling Kennedy's promise? A little, little bit of that as well? Sure. Kennedy's death, too, probably, you know, threw some kerosene on that motivational fire as well. Mm-hmm. And he gives this speech. And uh, was was that the same year? Did he give that speech the year that he was shot? I think it might have been or the year before. Uh, but, yeah, I, I thought his I thought his inauguration inauguration. Yeah, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. I thought that speech was the one where he said he, they want to put a man on the moon before the. No, turn of the century. no, that one, I think, was Rice University, if I'm remembering this correctly. I only know this because I watched the PBS documentary last week. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to pull ah. that out of my head otherwise. Uh, but, yeah, I think that was later on. 
That's that's another thing that I I was thinking about it when I was reading about like Magellan and all these these old school like English and Spanish and Portuguese explorers that did the you know led up to the first circumnavigation was a lot of the stuff wasn't wasn't based on just idealistic exploration and the expansion of mankind's horizons. A lot of it, in in a related way, you know, this was mo- motivated by military supremacy back in the sixties. Well, five hundred years ago, this was motivated by economics. Like getting on this boat and figuring out the path around the world was was motivated by this urge and drive to get to the Spice Islands to corner the spice market for Portugal or Spain. I guess it was Spain. That's how Magellan did the uh, his boat did the first uh, circumnavigation. He didn't survive the damn thing. It's not always like just this this noble idealistic quest for scientific achievement. A lot of the time, it's it's motivated by something else, pushed by something a little less savory, <laughs> to say the least. And uh, yeah, it's it's born fruit for us. But one other thing I was going to say about that, we were talking about the Russians. Go check out Google if you're interested in this stuff. And there's a list of all of the casualties in that they know of in our program and in the Russian space program. And they were bumbling idiots, man, compared to ours. They had like a, a bunch, uh, like at least two of their re-entry modules or their re-entry uh, training exercises. And they actually, they may have been space flights. I don't know. One of them burned up on the way coming down. And two of them, something really just simplistic and basic as far as mechanics go, went to hell and caused the spaceship, to, the, the capsule, to like go off course by hundreds of miles. One of them crashed in some forest in the Ural Mountains, and they had to sit there in a survival situation uh, for like a week, living out of the, 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 the space capsule until somebody could get to them. And they weren't rescued until like a bunch of skiers showed up and got them out of there. It, it's remarkable to read about that. And I also think it's pretty interesting that at the time it was it was seen as this great American achievement. It was a little bit of that when I was still like a, a young kid learning about the, you know, the space program and in grade school, but it's pretty much now shifted to just like a human achievement mm-hmm. to get us to the moon. You know what I'm saying? Like, like look what mankind did. I, I don't I'm not, I'm not putting like a value judgment on it one way or the other. It's just, it's just weird how it shifted. I mean, just like when you were talking about Sputnik, my dad told me that he remembers when, you know, they put Sputnik up there it was the fear of the unknown. Oh my God, what does it have missiles attached to it? Can they, right. can they shoot us? You know, like, like no one, like all of a sudden all the whole worst things from sci-fi started coming to their, you know, everybody's minds because it was the, the fear of the unknown. You know, well, what, what can that thing do? What can't it do? You know, and meanwhile, it's up there just beeping. <laughs> That's all it was. <laughs> just a, yeah, literally a beacon. <laughs> like I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? <laughs> That's all it was. <laughs> so, yeah. One other note on that. The only people to ever die in space. How many people do you know of that have died in space? Literally in outer space. I don't know. Isn't there like two or three that are Russian? Yeah, there are three. They're the only ones. And something uh, malfunctioned during a docking procedure. And the vehicle they were in decom- decompressed or depressurized. And that was it. But those are the only, we're talking about casualties in the space program. Those are the only three people, as of now, who have ever died in outer space. That's it. Only three. That's incredible. Like Challenger was in the Amazon, was on launch. The, what was the other one? Was that uh, the one Columbia? Back in 03 or 02? That was re-entry, wasn't it? Yeah, that was already that was right over like Arizona, New Mexico. Other than those three, nobody else has ever died in outer space. I find that incredible. I mean, considering like Apollo thirteen, to have only three people die. Wait, what about George Clooney? I saw Gravity. <laughs> it wasn't a documentary. You're aware of this, right? George Clooney is not an astronaut, nor does he kill stripper vampires. <laughs> Yeah, we're not going to count the interstellar guys that went through the black hole either. They died in another dimension, okay? That doesn't count. It's not <laughs> our space. <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah, 50 years on uh, for Apollo, the uh, launches today. And I think, yeah, it was the 20th. 
uh, is going to be the uh, 50th anniversary of the one small step for man, one giant leap for man kind thing. And that's coming up this Saturday. So, I, again, I think it's absolutely astounding. I think it's remarkable. And, and I think the bigger thing, to expand it out and maybe bring it back to where we're ultimately headed now, Chris, thanks, uh, is that 1969, you watch the coverage of this, and you watch the the people. There were a million people gathered down there to watch the launch and to watch Armstrong take the first steps and then Aldrin, watching the coverage on their televisions. I wasn't there. This was before I was born. But the sense of unity it sort of oozes off the screen when you're watching this. It's like like you were saying. It's like an achievement of mankind. This is like one of us, like an extension of me, is doing this for the first time. And the, the sense of positivity, a positive accomplishment, had to be overwhelming, at least for a couple of days in 1969. And our generation, we're all relatively, the three of us are all relatively about the same age. And every generation after that has not, we've been robbed of that. The generation for these guys at least had World War II. They had D-Day, right? Probably the generation before that, I guess, uh, was whatever happened when World War I ended, the armistice. Where's ours? Did we have? Uh, we, we, do we have to settle for like the the ten days after nine eleven? When I would take no, care I was, of I was just gonna say, I think, I think we got nine eleven. That's it. <laughs> so we took a blow to the head and and licked our wounds for ten days, as opposed to putting a man on the moon. I mean, I, I just where is it? Is there anything other than that? Uh, we're the generation that legalized weed. Yeah, <laughs> endless internet porn. <laughs> we have that, and we have Facebook and Twitter. Aw. It, it, it's, it's a question that was brought up in uh, Fight Club, the book yes. and the movie. Yes. It, the older I get, the more I kind of feel that, that you know, we're the middle children of history yeah. is absolutely correct. Because if you look at, if you look at millennials, millennials ha- direct most of their hate and discontent towards the baby boomers. Yeah. And the baby boomers direct most of their hate and discontent towards millennials. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're, we're in the middle going, uh... Hey, what about us? Hate us! Hate us, We're just like, we hate you both. Yeah. Or, or, better yet, we would hate you both, but we're the slacker generation. We just don't care. Yeah. We're indifferent towards you both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it really was. Like, we, we kind of are the middle children of baby boomers, Gen Xers, and millennials because... We were the first generation to be told, you're not going to do as well as your parents. Upward mobility is going to stall with your generation. And for a lot of people, it did. You know, the middle class has shrunk on our watch. I mean, now, is that necessarily our fault, our generation's fault? I mean, there's a lot of things that go into something like that happening that came before. And there's a lot of uh, uh, unknowns that, that pop up, you know, the tech bubble in the 90s. You know, no one saw that coming and affecting the world like it did. And I mean, no one's no one saw the rise of social media like like it like it was. I mean, you've talked about it on previous podcasts about how books from the '60s are are talking about you know, like television and stuff like that. But in a way, it's it it without calling it social media, it it, it is it is almost like you know <laughs> they might not they might not have had a crystal ball, but you know they should have they should have played the sports book at Vegas because they they came real close to. You know, to hitting a bullseye from what three three decades out? Yeah, it's not really social media so much as the they they were wondering about how technology as it developed, and they could see the course of things. You know, in the mid '60s, at least as the Lule guy that uh, and Postman and McLuhan uh, could all see where where tech was headed as far as sharing information and data, moving piece of information from one side of the earth to the other instantaneously, and then giving everyone the ability to do that. They could see that was coming eventually. And they were all concerned about what that was going to do, how that was going to affect dissemination of propaganda, which was what I've been obsessed with for the last few weeks. But not just that, also just data confusing people and drowning them in, in so much information that they can't perceive reality for what it is. 
There's too much there. There's too much hitting them at the same at one time. They can't focus their eyes. That's one thing that's come all the way through everybody that I've been talking about on this podcast anyway uh, for the last couple of months. That is the one common thread that sort of binds them all together, shackles them together is this, this data glut and not being able, people being unable to process it. It's counterintuitive to think about, but the more access to information you have and the more access to information that you gorge yourself on, the less informed you become. I know that's, it's counterintuitive, right? Like, more information makes me smarter. But no, not actually, because you're not able to process it all. We're only able to process a little bit at a time. There's like, like three pieces of information your mind can handle at once. And that doesn't involve drilling down, mining on it, coming to uh, putting it into context and completely understanding it. Think about how much information we're bombarded with just in an hour every single day between the internet, television, and our phones. <laughs> and people think they're smarter because of it. You've just got little fragments here, little fragments. It's like you, it's like a hard drive that hasn't been defragged since Clinton. It's all over the fucking place, but it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, just because it's being shot at you doesn't mean you're absorbing it. Yeah, and that's that, that's, that's a common thing. And this goes back not only to uh, uh, Alul, Postman, and uh, McLuhan, but this goes back, I mean, back to the fucking Telegraph. They were concerned about the same thing. And people adapted, people moved on, people adapted, move on with radio and, and then television and now and then cable TV, and maybe we will be able to move on from this, you know, get a handle on it, grasp it, and move forward. But have we gotten a hold of it, a handle on it, grasped it, and been able to move forward? Or have we just been uh, sort of sculpted and molded accordingly? You know what I mean? I, are we any smarter now? the average human being than somebody in, say, 1780? Well, the literacy rates are a lot better. The book smart, maybe. Yeah, first Regular thing, I, smart. I guess we have uh, to define, we, maybe we have to define smart. Are the, the most informed people, and average people, not specialists, not like scientists, and th- obviously there's not even any question that a scientist now will know more than a scientist in 1780. But as a guy today, an average dude, able to process information, does he does he have a better grasp on his world today than somebody in 1780? No, I would say that I would say in the, in 1780, people probably took the world as it as it was, and I think today <clears throat> a lot of people choose to see the world as they want it to be or they wish it was. Or, and, 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 you know what I'm saying? Like they, they don't, they don't look at the world and go, this is the way the world is. Let's, you know, act accordingly that, no, I wish it was this way, or I think it's this way, or I feel it's this way. So it's this way. Mm-hmm. And, and we can do that because we're, it's not just intelligence. We're coddled compared to people in 1780. Yeah, I mean, we are soft as baby poop. I think 1780s guy was a lot more aware of his surroundings because he had to be. You still had to do things like hunt, watch for invaders, protect your family, make sure they slept through the night, like shit like that. Don't get eaten by a bear. Yeah, you had to be much more conscious of what was going on around. Now, so many people are just in their little bubbles staring at their screen, not even, I mean, again, I I use this example all the time, just watching people at the airport. Self-awareness got to be at an all-time low, at least as far as, awareness of what's going on around you. Oh, that's one of the, that's, yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, coming from a family like I did that most of the men served in the military, some were career guys, some did, you know, their stent and got out. The one thing they always taught me is be aware of your surroundings constantly. Walk into a room with soft eyes, you know, observe everything, admire nothing, that type of attitude. And I, that really is a lost art on a lot of people. I mean, I know people that'll walk into a room and walk right past something and I'll go, didn't you see that? And they're like, huh, what? No. Hmm. Oh, when did that get there? I'm like, that's just basic. You just, 
what are you doing? Get your, get, get your head up out your phone for a second and take a look around. <laughs> yeah. Assess your, your situation. Where's your situational awareness here? You know, and, and it is a, it is a yeah, that, that's very lost. And it's something that also we like to blow ourselves for thinking, well, we, you know, oh, we're so smart. We're so evolved. But we're so coddled that we've come up with bullshit terms and situations like microaggressions. <laughs> you know, can you imagine going back to 1780 and telling Jebediah Jones about microaggressions? And he'd be like, and that bear behind you is a macroaggression. I don't even, I don't even, <laughs> this pitchfork up your ass is a macroaggression. I don't even think it would make it to the bear. Can you seriously even go back fifty years? Can you imagine using the word microaggression in nineteen sixty one? Yeah, fifty Pearl Harbor. Yeah, imagine telling Don Draper about him that some of his acts while he's having that third martini at lunch are microaggressive. You know what I mean? It's just the, the whole concept would be laughable. But yeah, that's that that is a new a brand new construct. Extra thick bubble wrap. And I, I truly do think it comes from we've solved so many problems that have historically plagued humanity such as food, shelter, basic sustenance. Mm-hmm. I mean, here in America for the vast overwhelming majority of people, and of course there's always going to be exceptions whatever, but the basics are, are pretty much taken care of. Now it still might be a struggle to get them taken care of, but it's not, Oh shit. I haven't eaten for a week. You know, I'm getting weak here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting, you know, I'm getting ready to fall out. Yeah. Kids got I mean, smallpox. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if someone in your, your neighborhood gets sick, you don't worry about it wiping out half the fucking town. You know, yeah, I mean, you're echoing a sentiment. One Mr. Adam Carolla says all the time, we are out of problems. Well, we're making them. We're creating, new, yeah. we're creating new ones. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's it, when you get into, like I said, microaggressions, unconscious bias, all these terms and, and scenarios that are put forward that, you know, it's like, where did this shit come from? How much time do you have on your hands? Like, literally, what, what do you... It must be nice to just be able to just sit around and invent problems to shove in people's faces. I mean, because that's what I, it really feels like sometimes that people are doing. They're like, okay, shit's going too well. How can I throw a monkey wrench in this fucking, in, in the works here? How can I do that? Oh, let me invent some bullshit that's going to piss people off. Let me, let, me, let me say shit like, you know, oh, you know, you're privileged and this and that. And we're all privileged. I mean, we've had this conversation, but some people need to hear it way more than once. You're born in America. You're born on third base overall compared to a lot of the rest of the world. Don't agree with me? Talk to Todd about his world travels. Todd, how is our standard of living compared to some Central and South American countries? You notice it within two minutes off the plane. I bet you do. The very first thing you know, I, I, my first trip to, to Central Latin America was to Cancun. All right. Cancun, the tourist mecca <laughs> of, of the Mexican Riviera, right? I got off the plane. That was the very first thing I noted. I'm like, whole shit. I am not in Kansas anymore. I, it, it, you see people living in shacks. The overall lack of luxury. Everything is. By comparison, a necessity. You can feel the struggle existentially permeate your skin as compared to here. And then, not only that, after you're immersed in it for a while, in my case, two, three months typically, and you get used to it and you adapt, and then you come back and you get off the airplane, say, in Houston, and you get through customs and you're thrust into this terminal where everything is everywhere. You can buy a fucking iPhone out of a vending machine here at some of these airports. I don't know if it's an iPhone, but I know you can buy like these really... I know what you're talking about, Todd. Yeah, you can buy like, you can buy all kinds of shit that's upwards of like two, $300. At least. In a Best Buy vending machine. Yes, we have high-end electronics in the, the, the vending machines here. Yes, I will second your motion, Rich. And you appreciate it after a while. Maybe I've told this before, but 
Chris and I, prior Chris, not this Chris, the other Chris and I, we're, we're down in Mexico. And it always bothers me now uh, when I hear like these sort of clicky hippies get together, Americans, gringos, at some hostel down there. And this, is ha- this happens all the fucking time. And they'll be sitting around the table, you know, drinking cheap Mexican beer with European kids about their own age. And the first thing they want to do is to fit in with the in-group and start slamming their own country and start pissing and moaning about the United States. And it always bothers me. It, it bothered me from the, even when I was a less patriotic type than I am now, that always bothered me. It's like calling your mom a cunt. You know what I mean? You just don't do that. I can say that, and you can say that to me, but you don't say that to them. And if they say that to me, we're probably going to have a problem, especially if it gets off into some, you know, sort of like personal attack kind of thing, just pettiness. But that's always bothered me. And it got worse after spending a couple of months down there, seeing how these, these folks live every single day. It, it, it triggers empathy on, uh, in, inside of you for them. But it also, if you're thinking about things properly, I think, also should give you some semblance of appreciation for where you fucking live and how well you have it. You know, Patrice O'Neill said, because he, he was born in Boston, started his comedy career in Boston, and then spent a few years in, in England. And one of, his, one of his observations when he came back is he goes, I, nowhere in the world am I a nigger but here in America. I, I go over to England I don't, I don't get the racial hatred that I get from certain areas of this country. But he goes, I was never proud to be an American until I went to England. Because you get over there, and no, you're not, you know, hey, darky, whatever. It's ugh, fucking yank. Yeah. And, and he's like, I could run, run into another American. He could be a skinhead with KKK on his knuckles. And I'm like, yo, what's up? USA, USA. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, fuck these limeys, you know? And he's like, and he goes, and I didn't feel that way till I traveled around the world and saw that we are hated by a lot of people, right or wrong. And he's like, it, it gave me some perspective on, you know, wow, I'm, yeah, we got our problems here, but do I really, is there a lot of, is there, is there a long laundry list of places I'd rather live than besides America? No, there's, I, I can't think of one. I used to think that I would like to live in Germany or maybe France. But the last, I don't know, five years has shown me that they have their own fucking social problems that are just as bad as ours. Just as bad as they're just hidden better. They're just sort of buried beneath the surface. And theirs are bubbling out just like ours are in the same fashion. I, you talk about like economics. A lot of people, I would like to go live in that socialist society over there because they have health care and free education. They're also on the brink of bankruptcy. And they don't have a military budget. Are health- you also into 40% taxes? Yes. And they're still having fiscal problems. The UK was talking about austerity measures a few years ago because they still can't pay for all of these social programs. It's all over the place over there. And they don't have a military budget. They're still failing economically. Some are doing better than others, but in general, there's a lot of fiscal problems on that continent. And we're subsidizing it with our military. Because of our military, they don't need one or one to speak of. Can you imagine if they had to actually finally start building their own defenses to protect themselves from the evil beast to the east? Then what's their fiscal situation going to be with all of these social programs? It would collapse under its own weight if they had to protect themselves from Putin. How does that going to... So no, back to the original... I would not... It would be great maybe 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago to live over there. But looking forward, you think I'm going to pick up and move from here to go over there? They got their own trials of Job coming. We're doing okay. At least here, I can. I. I. I I'm. Well, whether or not I'm responsible is a, a debate to be had later. But at least I'm capable of being <laughs> responsible for my own situation. 
Well, and it's a, it, it's you know, it's a different type of hatred you run into, or I don't know if hatred is the right word. It is. I, I, you know, I, I have a friend, she's been to France many times. She like when she vacations, her and her husband go and actually stay with friends who, you know, born, raised in, in France. And she goes, you know, you go into the city, you go into like Paris. It, everything is very like, ugh, ugh. if you're not French, ugh. it's not, it's not, uh, yeah. look at that black guy. Look at this Arab. It's, ugh. look at these non-French people get out of here. That's their form of discrimination. But then it's funny because if you start, if you go, well, you know, if you start talking about, you know, racial issues in America, they look at you like a caveman. Like, why do you worry about what color someone is? <laughs> Are they French? No. <laughs> then they suck. That's all you need to, that's you need to ask yourself. Yeah, that's a trope. That's like, that's like a stereotype of every French. They don't really just hate Americans. They just don't like you if you're not French. That's it. <laughs> they're not not they're not bigoted and uh, against Americans. They're just bigoted against everybody, but not them. Well, let's be honest. It doesn't help that you have a lot of American tourists that probably go over to Paris, and like the minute they get there, they're like, Ugh, "What is this language you're speaking in France? Speak English, <laughs> fucking foreigners!" And they're like, "You realize you're in our country, right?" <laughs> like you, like. You you understand? This is our native language. You're you're the foreigner here, okay? Just because we like your fat American dollar doesn't mean we want your fat American ass over here. Why don't okay? you speak in American? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the and the funny thing is is that in France, at least in Paris, I think they mostly speak English. I think they're taught English as sort of the common tongue, right, on the continent. I think they all speak it, so they all probably could speak English if they wanted to. They'd just rather give you the fucking finger. You are in my country. You speak in my language. Something down that I, I'm trying to find this thing. You hear me moving around in here, probably. I, I've got this thing from Orwell that where he was talking about when you were talking about the French thing and how they're sort of just xenophobic, how they don't like anybody but French, right? He was he wrote in um, I think it might have been politics in the English language, or it's at least in the in the book Why I Write. He was writing about the English and how they're that way. They don't like anybody who's not English. They have like this famous xenophobia of anything, any outsider they don't like. And I wonder if, if that's kind of what we're, uh, what we're talking about here. Maybe it's not so much like, I'm sure there is an element of anti-Americanism over there in certain sects, but I wonder if that's just like if they say when, I don't know, somebody from Belgium comes over, if they're like, the Belgians. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, according to my friend, she's like, I don't know if you guys remember after 9-11, they were saying if you travel outside of this country, keep the, um, the like the American shit to a, you know, yeah. to a minimum. Like you heard stories about people buying like, like Canadian flag patches and putting it on their backpacks. <laughs> so they're like, you know, what, you from America? No, I'm from Canada. Oh, okay. All right. It, it, mm, it doesn't matter. <laughs> they, they just like, uh, Canadians. Ugh, yeah, nobody, go back to Canada. Nobody hates Canadians. <laughs> nobody can hate Canada. Well, what's to hate about Canada? You know what I mean? It's fuck Anne like, Margaret. <laughs> or or, or Anne Murray. Fuck, fuck that bitch. <laughs> I've seen people that have done exactly what you're talking about. We get the same thing when we go down to Latin America. Where you like have this like British, or not British, but uh, a Canadian flag on your pack. You don't show anybody your passport if they ask where you're from. Well, I'm from Montreal. I'm Canadian. I'm from Quebec. I'm a Quebecois. I'm from Winnipeg, damn it. It's a real yeah. fucking thing, and a lot of people do it. <laughs> hey, y'all. I'm from Montreal. How y'all doing? <laughs> they can't tell the accents. Accent you yeah, got there. <laughs> they, they can't tell those accents. <laughs> they can't pick that shit up. We just sound like we're speaking English. <laughs> you could use okay, could... Montreal. Hey, but see, we, we in Detroit, we don't realize we do have... <laughs> a slight Canadian sound to our voice. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that nasally thing going. Yeah. I, I, I used to game with guys and, and a group of guys and one of them was from New Zealand. And I asked him like around the you know, first time I met him, I said, are you from Australia? And he just started laughing and he goes, yeah. Oh, why, why do all you, all you Canadians think? I, and I'm like, Oh, wait, what? C Canadians. I'm like, I'm from Detroit. And he's like, wait a minute. Isn't like 
Canada on the other side of the river? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you're Canada South. Just shut up. And like, anyway, because <laughs> you sound Canadian to me anyway. So okay, then fine. Up. Then you're Australia West. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you sound Australian no, to me, that. so fuck you. He's Australia adjacent. <laughs> no, that, that is uh, one, one thing that I didn't realize before we moved away from here in uh, 2004. We went from here to Florida. And that was the first time that I heard, oh, you've got one of those Michigan accents. And I'm like, what the hell are you oh, talking yeah. about? I don't have an accent. I just talk. I, I, I did radio for years, goddammit. I speak perfectly. And then I started to hear it. And it's, it's sort of a cross between Canada and Chicago. Yep. Uh, and we hit our vowels, vowels really hard. It, it yeah. is a real thing. And I found, I've been back here a little over a year. I never got the Massachusetts accent. I wish I had. I wanted that accent. I just couldn't pick it up. But since I've come back, I've spent, I don't know, 14 years sort of slowly getting rid of it. And now it's coming back. I can hear it in the podcast. It is a real thing. Most people in Michigan don't realize it. They don't think that uh, there's any accent here. But it is thick as fuck. You could, when I was down in the Southwest, after I'd been gone for a while, I could tell immediately someone was either from northern Indiana, Ohio, or somewhere around Michigan. It's as distinct as, almost as distinct as like the Fargo accent. Almost, not quite that distinct, but it's there. Yeah. So you travel around a lot. Can Have you picked up on that? Can you hear it when you oh, come ab- back? Oh, absolutely. I can hear it myself. I can hear it my friends. I can hear it my family. Yeah. It's not a happy moment when you figure that out. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I was 10 when I moved to Florida for the first time. And I found out the first day of school because every fucking kid was like, why the fuck you talk like that? Why you talk like that? And I'm like, talk like what? I sound normal, you know? And and these weren't, these weren't like swamp dwelling Floridians. So it's not like these were people with deep, you know, thick accents themselves. And, but then, you know, I went home and was like, I'm getting ripped on for my accent. And my dad's like, yeah, you do sound like a Yankee. I'm like, a Yankee? What are you, a Viking? Civil War's been over for like 150 years. What's wrong with these people? And he's like, welcome to the South, son. (laughs) You know, my my uncle was born and raised in Michigan. He moved down to Tennessee in his 20s, and he stayed ever since. And to this day, he gets told by the people, like native people from Tennessee, going, hey, why are you talking? I'm not talking fast. You listen slow. That's your problem. Pick up the pace. You know what? I found this thing on Orwell, and I think this is going to be a good launching point for another episode, guys. I like this. Okay. Uh, we'll go get some fill-up on some coffee and uh, go smoke a cigarette, hit the head and all that, and we'll come back with uh, another hour of coffee talk here on the Toddzilla X Network. What was that thing in uh, I th- Saturday Night Live? I think, what I'm, I think what I'm known for is my sweaty balls. Yeah. <laughs> what, was that, what was that program called? I think it was. No, Coffee Talk was the Mike Myers one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh uh, the delicious dish. Delicious. The delicious dish. Let's talk like this when we come back, guys. Escapingthecave.com, also on the ChristopherMedia.net network, and at ETC Pod on Twitter.